Radio Mano Papachango. I'm coming to you from Chiang Mai, Thailand, and I'm told that means something like welcome in Thai language. That's about all I can say. Welcome and thank you. I'm recording this sitting in the uh, sort of a lobby cafe restaurant area of the Buddy Guest House where we're staying tonight. It's my birthday. I've had a couple of beers already, and uh, I'm going out uh, to have a few more in the night market in a few minutes. So I'll keep this intro kind of brief, which is good because this week's guest is Stephen Schwartz, who is so freaking interesting that you really don't need to hear a bunch from me. Uh, we can move right into the conversation with him. As you'll hear, he's had a incredible background that uh, ranges from working for the upper echelons of the Defense Department to um, doing research into consciousness and remote viewing and all sorts of really interesting funky stuff. He's a very straight thinker um, in the sense that he is, is open-minded and um, not dismissive of the unknown, but he adheres to uh, some pretty stringent intellectual guidelines that keeps him from getting too woo-woo. He's a lot like Stanley Krippner, and they've been friends for a long time, for several decades at least. I apologize for the uh, motorcycles and the glass in the background. It's, it's kind of quiet until you turn on microphones, and then all hell breaks loose. I don't know. I don't, that's some strange law of the universe. Um, anyway... The only thing I, I, I thought of that I wanted to mention this week was, first of all, thanks for all the feedback on the Lodi episode, last week's episode. Um, it's been, it seems to have been uh, an episode that has struck a chord with a lot of listeners. Uh, I, I can't remember the last time I got this much feedback on a conversation. might have been all the way back to episode 100 when I have had Casilda on. And we heard from a lot of you about that episode. But the Lodi episode, um, yeah, really seemed to strike people. And uh, I'm glad because I wasn't sure, you know. He certainly struck me as somebody well worth introducing to those of you out there in the world who listen to this podcast. Um, But he's not famous. He's not, uh, you know, any sort of cutting-edge researcher he's just a really interesting guy so if you missed that episode or you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet um, I think you want to make sure you have that one in the queue somewhere Lodi L-O-D-H-Y very interesting guy anyway on to this week's episode the only thing I wanted to talk about really this week was I was thinking about this controversy with um, Amy Schumer who if, if you're not aware of what's been happening she was accused of stealing jokes and this is something that comes up pretty often in comedy and uh, Joe Rogan in fact is sort of famous for having confronted a comic who was on stage at the comedy store in Hollywood I believe um, Carlos Mencia 
And Joe stood up in the audience and called him out in the middle of his act, which is a pretty high drama move there. But uh, anyway, you can see all that on YouTube. There are, you know, hundreds of thousands of views of those those moments. But uh, what happened with with um, Amy Schumer is, is difficult because I really like Amy Schumer. I think she's great. I love her shamelessness and her uh, challenge to sort of sexual stereotypes of what women should be and, you know, body image and all sorts of stuff. So I respect her a lot. And so when I read the uh, accusations against her, I was predisposed not to believe them. But then uh, I, I watched the videos of the material that she did on stage and the material that other people had done on stage previously and fuck some of it's close to word for word and so but but she went online and 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 did interviews and stuff and and her point was like why the fuck would i steal jokes especially from my friends she uh, some of the material was done by patrice o'neill who was a good friend of hers and you know, yeah, she's right. Why the fuck would she do that? It's not like she's stupid enough to think she's not going to get caught, right? One very popular comedian performing at, you know, Carnegie Hall, stealing material from someone else who had a TV show and millions of followers. You're not going to get away with that. So her logical defense made sense to me. But then when I watched the the material side by side, it was undeniable that that it had been done before. So so I was sort of stuck there. And then I I realized something that's happened to me a bunch of times. I'll and, and this wouldn't have happened to me if I weren't recording conversations a lot, either on this podcast or in other people's podcasts. I'll have an experience where like I was working on this book and I come up with some idea and it just pops into my head and it's like, wow, that's a really interesting idea. I should explore that. And I start researching it and pursuing it. And, um, you know, and then I will either look back at some notes that I took or I'll listen to a podcast interview I did or, you know, I'll see myself in some video or whatever from a year, two years, three years previously and, and there I am talking about that idea, an idea I thought that I had just come up with a few days ago. And I was talking about it two or three years ago. So my point is that we don't know where our ideas come from. I read something someone said recently that a memory is not a memory of the event. It's a memory of the last time you remembered the event. Right. So even our memories are like that game. What's that game? Telephone where where a phrase gets passed around and and it subtly changes so that when it finally gets back around the circle, it's completely different. But nobody lied along the way. Nobody intentionally fabricates a bunch of bullshit. It just sort of happens because, you know, it's like the, the replication of DNA. There are these little mutations that pop up. It just happens. It's entropy. It's the nature of the universe. So. It's completely believable for me to think that Amy Schumer heard Patrice O'Neill do that material at some point, completely forgot about it, and then three, four, five years later, 
that idea popped into her head and she truly, honestly believed it was a completely original thought that she was having. I have no problem believing that because it's happened to me lots of times. And I wouldn't, if I weren't a writer and someone who records this shit, I never would have noticed, right? Because the past just fades out and then you're always living in this eternally fresh, new, seemingly new present. But it's not new. There's a quote I heard years ago from supposedly from Marie Antoinette's dressmaker. I guess someone said something about one of her designs and she said, there's nothing new except what has been forgotten. So there you go. The reason that material seemed new to Amy Schumer and to other comics and to other writers and to other thinkers and whoever is that in this case, they'd heard it before, but they forgot it. So when it popped up into their heads, it felt new and fresh. Memory's a funny thing. Not to be trusted. But it's all we've got. God damn, it just got noisy around here. Dogs and tuk-tuks. Uh, anyway, Thailand is great. Today's my birthday, as I think I mentioned earlier. I turned 54 today. So pretty soon I should start getting some goddamn wisdom. I'm going to play you out with a song uh, by uh, a listener of the podcast, Jean-Marc Lee, who wrote to me months ago now. I'm sorry, Jean-Marc, it's taken me this long to, to get around to playing some of your music, which I really enjoy. I'm going to play a song that he sent me called Only a Mirage. Uh, here's his description. He says, it has some Middle Eastern and Latin influences. The instrumentation is a violin played like a guitar and two flamenco guitars. The piece was an experiment with tension and release in the interaction between the instruments. I love it. I, I think it sounds a lot like the soundtrack to the movie. Um, uh, what, what's that movie called? Che, che, the Motorcycle Diaries. Love that soundtrack. Love the film. Um, anyway, this is Jean-Marc Lee, who's a friend of the podcast. Thank you, Jean-Marc. Uh, you can uh, check him out. Learn more about his music and, uh, and get some yourself if you want at www.reverbnation.com forward slash Jean-Marc Music. That's J-E-A-N-M-A-R-C Music. Reverbnation.com forward slash Jean-Marc Music. Thank you, Jean-Marc. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hope you enjoy the conversation, the music, the whole damn thing. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stefan Schwartz. Uh, he puts out a newsletter, by the way. It comes out every day. It's called the Schwartz Report. I've been getting it for, God knows, 20 years. I think we talk about it in the, in the conversation. It is really worth signing up for. It's free. It's donation. Um, you know, if you want to make a donation, you can, but you don't have to. And every day, there are three, four articles that he has tracked down that he thinks are indications of important trends that are playing out in our world and it is unfailingly every day there's something really interesting in there so i encourage you to sign up for his newsletter uh, if you get a chance thanks for listening and uh hope to catch you next week i'll be reporting from somewhere in thailand we're renting motorcycles tomorrow and riding off into the mountains so if you never hear from me again it means i finally ran into that elephant i barely missed 
30 years ago when I was in Chiang Mai. It's funny how time flies.
All right, I am sitting in a deluxe hotel room with Stefan Schwartz, who is uh, a multifaceted personality. Uh, in addition to many other things that you've been doing, you were just describing to me your long-term interest in uh, leading this field of consciousness research. Um, but I know you through the Schwartz Report, which I have been getting for, I have no idea how long you've been putting it out, but... 20 years. 20, and then I've probably been getting it that long, and I'm ashamed to say that I never contributed until about two weeks ago. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so you got a, a buck a year out of me <laughs> in aggregate. But uh, our mutual friend Stanley Krippner just started forwarding things to me back, you know, in graduate school, I guess, and your hit rate of fascinating research and, and just uh, things that are happening in, this, in the world of, I don't want to say fringe, but non-mainstream research is just amazing. The amount of fascinating, interesting stuff that you put out, it must take you a lot of time to go through and filter out the bullshit. Well, you know, it, it takes time. Um, I start with the peer-reviewed literature. I don't think of it as outside the mainstream at all. Um, I would say that, uh, for instance, I wouldn't, um, you know, I don't think of climate change as outside of the mainstream or uh, a genetic uh, science as being outside, you know. So yeah. what I would say is that I cover material that you are not likely to see in corporate media, right, exactly, or you're not likely to see featured. It you know it might appear on page thirty-eight of, but I'm looking. I don't do news and I don't do polemics. I'm looking for data points which describe trends which are shaping the future. Right, and so I care about and look for a lot of things that at first blush might seem disconnected or um, might seem as if they're not terribly important um, I, and and yet because I've been doing this a long time and I see these trends I can tell with some reasonable accuracy you've been reading it for a long time this is a data point on an emerging trend and it's going to play a big role in the future. Right. And, and I see that you, you don't shy away from the negative. You, you're accentuating the positive, but you're also, there's a balance to it. You're just I, honest about it. I, I just, I do the trends. Right. I don't make them. Right. I mean, I, we all make them. Now let me rephrase that. Right. We are all involved with creating the society that we are part of. That's what my new book is about, The Eight Laws of Change. But I, you know, I, do, I don't care about politics. I don't care about partisanship. I'm not interested in ideology or theology except from an anthropological point of view. What I care about is data. And what I really care about is wellness and what produces wellness. That's what got me started with this. Mm. I began studying how do you create social change and particularly how do you create wellness. How do you define wellness? 
Well, just, I mean, just what you think I mean. I'm, health, prosperity, a sense that you are able to fulfill your potential, that your family and children are safe and will prosper, that um, uh, you will be what the founders meant when they said happiness, mm. what Benjamin Franklin meant by a virtuous citizen. Uh, that's what I'm interested in. I think the function of society is to produce, should be, isn't, but I think the function of society should be the, to produce wellness. Do you think that's ever been the function of society? Oh yes, there are societies that are very much wellness oriented. Mm. Yeah, uh, I just did a paper, for instance. Uh, Bernie Sanders, in one of the first Democratic debates, made a comment about Norway. And so I, uh, I thought, well, that's actually quite interesting. What, if you looked at those two societies, I realize they're of different sizes. That's not the point. It has to do with the intention, the social intention. And that's true whether you're little or big. <clears throat> so I, I thought, well, that's quite interesting. Uh, what is the difference between, what are the differences between Norway and the United States? Yeah. Now, as I said, I don't, I don't care about, I'm not interested in your theories. I don't care about your ideology. What I want to know is if you do this, what's the outcome? So my measurement is data of social metrics. I want to know, when you cut through all the crap, um, what's the outcome? And does it produce wellness? That's what I care about. So I made a list of, of about 20, I can't remember exactly, but about 20 social outcomes. Maternal mortality, infant mortality, teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, heart disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, mm. illiteracy, educational attainment, uh, incarceration, uh, gun deaths, it's obvious things, there's nothing, you know, uh, and I compared both the United States and Norway. And the outcome is, well, I mean, from the point of view of the United States, it's quite grim. It's notably inferior. The outcomes are notably inferior. Norway is a society which has made a social contract amongst itself. It's a citizen idea that we're going to create wellness. Yeah. And so, if you look at these things across time and across various societies, I mean, we pay more than any other country in the world for health care. And yet, according to the World Health Organization, we're, I think the last one was 37th. In, in total the 30s. outcomes. Yes, yeah. in total outcomes. Yeah. And if you look at and, and, underserved populations, it's even worse. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. That's the overall. Yeah. So we pay more than anybody else. I think it's about 17.2% 17, 17 of our gross domestic product. 
the best healthcare system in the world, the French, pays about, I don't know, a 30% less, about 11.2% of their gross domestic product. Right. So we're paying more than anybody else by orders of magnitude, but we're getting rotten outcomes. Yeah. Now, I mean, just to take what I mean by rotten outcomes, a child born in rural North Carolina, as an example, is four times more likely, uh, no, that's, I'll give you another one. A, a child born in rural North Carolina has less chance of getting to his first birthday than a child born in Botswana. It's a country most people have never even heard of. It's in the middle of South Africa. It was a protectorate at one point. A child in Texas is four times more likely to be physically abused to a point of hospitalization than a child in Vermont. Eleven times more than a child in Rome. You know, uh, Justice Louis Brandeis said back in the 30s, the states are laboratories. That's what the founders intended. Mm. The states are laboratories and you can see by the choices they make the outcomes that they get and therefore you can learn from them and decide whether you want to int introduce this at the national level. Yeah. <clears throat> well, if you look at, for instance, not just between countries, the Norway, United States, it really was very grim. If you look at the difference between the red value states and the blue value states, I don't mean, I forget about the political ideology, at least the political polemic, not the ideology, the polemic. <clears throat> Everybody tells you they want to make things better and that they're going to blah, 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 whatever. Mm, and they love the children. Oh, and we do, love do the Do it for the children. Yeah, we don't. That's actually, well, I don't want to get sidetracked. That, that's actually another one of the big lies. Yeah. There are these series of big lies. Anyway. If you look at the states, as an example, you can see that red value states consistently have poor social wellness than blue value states. Yeah. And they cost more. And the big takeaway in all this is that wellness is cheaper, it's more efficient, it's more effective, and it's more enduring. Yeah. So, social red value social policies are more expensive, the converse, less efficient, less productive, and they last less. And they cause huge amounts of unnecessary suffering. Oh, uh, vast, that's, right. they, they are anti-wellness. Right, so, okay, so uh, let me push back a little bit on a couple of points you made. Um, first of all, people listening to this, uh, a lot of them are gonna say, look, Norway is a very small country, and you made the point, doesn't matter, scale uh, isn't an issue here. Um, but I think it is an issue in the sense that the social networks are less extended and people are more likely to have some sort of 
mm, direct contact with one another. So well, in, a, in a country like Norway, you know, and this is a minor point, this isn't my main point, but I think it's important because I, I write a lot about hunter-gatherer societies versus modern society. And one of the things I always come back to is that scale changes things. Scale, sure. um, you know, makes relationships institutional rather than personal. And when the relationships become institutional, they become inhuman because you don't know, you never look in the eyes of the person whose pension you're cutting or the kid who isn't getting you know, lunch at school. It's not your kid. It's not a kid of anyone you know or will ever meet in your entire life. So it makes those decisions different. The other thing I would say is, you know, devil's advocate again, is that a place like Norway doesn't have anywhere near the amount of, uh, you know, the melting pot and all the different cultures, which creates a kind of brutality, I think, in America, that it's, it's not, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your situation is, the rules are the rules. I live in Europe, I've lived in Europe my whole life, adult life. Um, so when I come back to the United States, I'm struck by the rigidity of the, the legal system here. Um, certainly compared to Spain. So do you think, uh, now I know... Well, I mean, I have to respond. Sure, to go that. ahead, uh, jump you know, in, jump in. <clears throat> it is true that smaller societies, for a variety of reasons, are more personal. That's true. But the principle, but the critique that is offered that Norway is little and the United States is big, Norway actually has a population that's equal to about three states. D doesn't hold up. In, just look at the United States. Compare, for instance, the policies in California. Look at the difference between Jerry Brown and Sam Brownback. <laughs> right? Yeah. Kansas, right? Kansas. Yeah. Governor of Kansas. Republican governor of Kansas. Yeah. Tea Party Republican governor of Kansas. Jerry Brown inherits a state that is, by many people's uh, calculation, bankrupt. Right. Whose educational system is a disaster. Uh, whose uh, unemployment is in crisis. Natural disasters left and right. Left and right. Chronic drought. Right. Yeah. Every, everything you can think of. Right. California is going down the tubes. That was the commentator yeah. right, what, line of Seven the years ago or something? Yeah. Six years ago? Very recent. Sam Brownback, in contrast, comes into as governor to a state that is con very conservative traditionally, conservative, but stable, um, has a stable society. People are prosperous. They seem to have a quiet, conservative, but essentially wellness-oriented uh, future. Now you look seven years later at these two states. Jerry Brown has a, has a surplus. The educational system has been radically altered for the better. California, which has uh, is a at this point now a majority minority uh, state, uh, nonetheless has um, much less racial animosity. Mm. Has a much higher population than Kansas. Right. 
should be much more impersonal, right. should be yeah. much, uh, uh, there should be much more racial tension, um, on and on. Yeah. Uh, You're uh, right. Oh, it's a, it's wait, a wait, 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 because you need to say this. Yeah. California is making preparations about climate change. Right. Kansas has gone through, what is it, three credit uh, downgrades. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Brownbeck has gutted the educational system. He's running deficits. There is uh, a lot of animosity between the Christian fundamentalists. Uh, it's a almost majority, not a majority, almost overwhelmingly white state. And nonetheless, it has a lot of tensions between the various groups. It's a much less successful state seven years after Brownback came to office right. than California, which has gone in exactly the other direction. Or we could look at Bobby Jindal. Yeah. Or we could compare Wisconsin to Minnesota, where you have Mark Dayton in Minnesota and you've got Scott Walker in Wisconsin. So then, and in, yeah, yeah. So in every one of these places where you look at this, you see that although the, the, the scale argument that's advanced, oh well, Norway, Norway's little, and, right. is that the, it, yes, it holds true to a certain part, but no, it does not hold true um, across many thresholds of, of measurement because it has to do not with size so much as consciousness. See, I would yeah. say to you that hunter-gatherers operated well as a culture because they shared a common consciousness. Mm. They were linked together in a way that is very difficult for modern societies to attain. I live on an island off the coast of Washington, and one of the reasons I live there is because of this point you're making. It's a community that that has very close social connections. There's a whole citizen-created social safety network that we have, and as a result, we don't have crime. Uh, uh, we don't have, uh, I mean, you know, we have a little bit, but we don't have the teen acting out you would expect. We don't have the, all these crisis situations yeah. you would expect. It's a, the average income is $32,000 a year, and the poverty level in, in, for a family of four in Washington is 28. So it's, this is not a terribly affluent area. There are very affluent people. You know, we have billionaires living on the island, and there's an, an affluent sort of volitional group, people like me who came in from other places. But overall, of uh, you know, I live on South Island of the 26,000 people. There are a lot of people having a hard time. About 10% of our kids are homeless. But because of a citizen-created social safety network, we have very different social outcomes than you would expect by looking at the social demographics. And that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. You can see, as you look across states, I mean, California is like another, it's like a country. Mm -hmm. If you look at a state, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, they would, if they were not part of the union, they would be second world countries. Sure. Yeah. Maybe third world Maybe countries third world in some in cases. Many cases, yeah. What is clear is that when you choose to make social wellness the first priority, this is not an anti-profit. 
up. Um, that's not what I'm saying. Right. You can make all the profits you want. In fact, what's going to happen is that those people who create wellness-oriented technologies are going to make billions of dollars. Just as 30, 40 years ago, a group of post-teenagers transformed the world with IT and made billions of dollars. Yeah. Be and what? why? Because they increased the potential for wellness. Hmm. So then do you think, is there an innate tendency in capitalism toward increasing wellness? No. No, okay. But you, it's, the argument that is always made by conservatives is, oh, then you must be anti-capitalist, you must be anti-profit. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not against profit. Profit is what makes people get up in the morning. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people. What I'm saying is you have to make wellness your first priority and figure out how within a wellness productive whatever you can make profit. You look at a guy like Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a billionaire. And he's going to get much, much richer. Why? Because he figured this out. And his technologies are all about producing wellness. Yeah. Wellness in getting us out of the carbon age yeah. by creating solar storage devices to resolve the photovoltaic problem in, in, when it's dark. Mm -hmm. um, electric cars. Electric cars. Usable rockets. It just yeah. goes on and on and on. He. He has figured out that you, there are billions of dollars to be made in wellness. And it excites people. <clears throat> uh, yes. There are billionaires whose names, at least speaking for myself, I don't know, who probably are making far more money than Elon Musk, but I don't give a damn because I see Elon Musk trying to move the world in a direction I actually want it to go in. Yes, because I, I have a friend who bought a Tesla. He said, "I don't, I don't need a Tesla. I've got three other cars. I bought a Tesla because I want to support Elon Musk." Yes, and it is, by <laughs> the way, crazy. I have, I don't own one, but I've ridden in a number of them. It is the best car on the road. Yeah, yeah. no question about it. The, the the thing is, what's what the problem that we have as a culture, American society is that we lost what the founders were driving at. And instead, we have become a society who has only one social priority, and that's profit. Yeah. That's the only, prof that's the only social priority that counts. And we don't see that these extremes of economic inequality decrease wellness for everyone. Yes. And that, you know, what you were saying earlier is very interesting. The, the consciousness, the, the sort of unity of consciousness that some societies have and others don't. And I think you're right that it isn't really about scale. It, it's, I live in Spain. I've lived there the last 25 years or so. And one of the things I always notice is that in Spain, there, there, there's a lot of social control isn't necessary because people know how to behave. Mm -hmm. they, you can bring your dog to a restaurant, but you're not going to let your dog sit on the table and you know bark if it's yapping. Or piss and, on the floor. Or piss on the floor, exactly. You just don't do that. So there's no sign saying, no dogs allowed, because you just ex you expect people to know how to behave. Or there are no big like fences 
you know, at the I walk on the port a lot in Barcelona, and there's this drop off. It's like ten feet into the water. There's no f- danger, danger. There's no sign. If your kid falls, like you know, you got a dumb kid there, man. You know, and jump in the water and save you your kid. You weren't paying attention. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So there's this expectation that people aren't idiots, and then you come to America, and the expectation is that we are. And when I watch television, which I only do in this country, football with my dad. The ads are insulting. It's like acid being poured onto your brain. They're just telling you again and again, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're going to buy this. You're going to listen to this bullshit. It's amazing the the trajectory of American society seems to be pushing towards stupidity. Um, what's my point? My point is that in Spain, there's sort of a there's um, a unity of consciousness, to use your expression. Uh, that allows certain types of freedom that here in the land of the free are unimaginable because it's all rule-based. We're not free. That's, yeah. that's, we, we tell, right now, America is in a position where all it does is tell itself big lies. Right. <laughs> exactly. We're defending freedom abroad. Yeah, we're not. We're, we're not bombing people. Yeah. We're creating chaos because of utterly ignorant and incompetent foreign policy in the Bush administration that created the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and produced utterly predictable results. Yeah. I, I was in so, government. Sure. And I used to write about geopolitical issues. I still write about you, but I mean, I, you know, the government paid me to do that. And do that kind of research. Were you in a think tank or something? No, I was the special assistant to the chief of naval operations for oh. research and analysis. Wow. Um, and I was very involved in issues like MAD and, and um, mutual, assured mutual destruction. assured destruction. One of the and best that, acronyms ever. Yeah. And the, yes. <laughs> no irony. And the, Where's and the, the sense of irony? And the triad that nobody <laughs> seems to understand anymore. Well, anyway. Uh, when was that? What, what administration? Uh, that was uh, from 1970 to 1975. That's so Nixon, Nixon into and Ford. Uh, Ford. Yeah. The capitulation to profit as the only social priority is what has created I mean you look you talk about television and you know what it's become I look at television I only watch news thing I'm looking at trends right so that's really all I ever care about but and I don't I tune out the ads I have a clicker that I don't have to hear them and I go you know it just runs in the background I'm trying to I'm looking for pulses Hmm. but it seems to me that most of the advertising is uh, pharmaceuticals. Right, right. Yeah, I see that. Pharma- it's, you're sick. You're in pain. Right. Let's Ph- not talk about why. Pharmaceuticals, yeah. um, adult diapers, cars. So, I mean, we have created a culture. We don't have a healthcare system. We have an illness profit system. And we have a culture which encourages unwellness. Right. I mean, it's a social priority to create unwellness because there are huge corporate structures who benefit from unwellness. They create unwellness. One of the interesting things that I have been following is marijuana legalization has been a fascinating trend to watch, as Mm. an example, partly because every myth that was advanced by prohibitionists turns out to be a myth. Right. 
I mean, just for starters. But more than that, things like, oh, teens will go crazy. No, actually in Colorado, they've just published a study, teen use of marijuana has gone down. Also the use of alcohol. Yeah, and, I think and that, opioids. Yes. Painkillers. Ah, uh, no, 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 you have, let's, we'll deal with those in a separate okay. category. Okay. Um, the, I, the reason I think is that if it's legal and you and your parents can go into a store, it's not cool anymore. You're not being a rebel right. by smoking a joint. But it, for whatever reason, marijuana usage among teens has gone down and hasn't gone up. Car accidents has, um, has not gone up. It's gone down. Or, or if it's gone up in some areas, it's gone up very slightly. Nowhere near as much as alcohol-related uh, automobile problems. But more interestingly, people, research has begun to be done again now by uh, uh, people who are interested in healthcare. And I, they're looking at and seeing results that must be terrifying to pharmaceutical companies that people are, are giving up alcohol and they're giving up antidepressants. Mm -hmm and using marijuana. We're doing a lot of medical research on marijuana, and so you look at, for instance, the Charlotte Webb marijuana oil for epilepsy. So it turns out there's a whole series of things, of benefits, that arise from the end of prohibition. And now I live in Washington State, where it's legal. And, and my interest, after a year of its legality, is that there is no story. That's the story. Yeah, yeah I've been there, struck by that as well. There, there is no story. There's probably, I think there are, on the island, there are three marijuana uh, retail places. I haven't been in them, but they're, about, they're out there. They don't have any impact on my life Nothing at all. happened. Nothing. And I there was no crime yeah. increase. Nothing. There was no crazed people. Reefer madness did not occur. <laughs> it's true. I remember, I mean, I'm in my mid-50s. So I was in college in the early 80s when Reagan was elected. You know, and I can remember the anti-drug mania, the minimum mandatory right. sentencing, the, you know, we've got to, like, you know, go into Central America, just all the, like, lunacy that was happening, alarmism, and all the time I was getting high. Of course I was. I was an upper-class white kid in, you know, private of college. Course. Nobody's going to arrest me. I had the best weed in the fucking world. And... And I knew that there was no problem. We were getting high, and we'd go to class. Everybody was fine, you know. But... But you're right, there was this industry of alarm built around it, and then it finally, 20, 30 years later, it's common sense starts to prevail, and absolutely nothing happens. Right. But now this gets to well, the... No, no, wait. Yeah, okay. Things do happen. Good things. Good things. But, but no, the sky didn't fall. Oh, no, absolutely. None of the prohibitionist claims of the social... Dis destruction that would occur with oh, and, legalization. And gay people are getting married, yes. and nothing happened with that either. Yeah. Well, let's just stay with this and the opiates. <laughs> yeah. Bad things happen. We have 2.3 million people in jail. We have 5% we have yeah. of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison population. The United States runs the largest gulag and torture system yeah. in the world. Yeah. We have thousands of people who are in solitary confinement in little concrete boxes, which the 
uh, is acknowledged to be a kind of torture. Right. In fact, when the media, we bring home some prisoner, like this poor guy, Jason, that the Washington Post reporter who's just come home, their commentary is, he was held in solitary confinement. Yeah. We have thousands of guys in solitary, right. 23 hours a day. Yeah. We have this huge torture system. We have this huge gulag, and now we're privatizing it, so it's even worse. Yeah. And in some states, we're developing a uh, school-to-prison pipeline, like Louisiana. So the marijuana legalization thing, which marijuana prohibition, I mean, I'm sure you know this, began when Harry Anslinger... Right realized that with the end of prohibition there was no justification for his office or his rice bowls. And and so what he did was come up, they chose marijuana because he could go to conservative southern senators and say black men are using this and they're going to rape your white women. Right. Blacks and Mexicans. Yes. No political power. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. And and so there was no push back from any countervailing, which as had happened with, with prohibition. When you realize the damage we've done to ourselves as a society by marijuana legal uh, uh, prohibition, just as an example of what I mean by wellness versus wellness degrading social policies, we spend billions of dollars warehousing human beings, billions. How many Elon Musks, yeah. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, who happen to have black skin, are locked up in prisons? Many of whom, by the way, uh, of the, uh, Steve Jobs certainly said taking LSD was one of the most important things he ever did for opening his mind. Oh, there to are creativity. a number of scientists that say a lot of yeah, a lot of Nobel Prize winners. Absolutely. Uh, so your point is so well taken. It's not only the, the, the neutralization of all this potential, but we're victimizing some of the most creative, open-minded people. You know, people who are interested in, in taking drugs. And I'm not talking about addiction and, and taking drugs as an escape. I'm talking about taking drugs as a way to explore consciousness. Well, and taking drugs, we, we, you started with opiates. What we're finding out now I don't want to spend this whole time on marijuana, but I, I, the marijuana trends illustrate so strongly exactly. it's a very the important points example. that I tried to get into in The Eight Laws of Change in, in this book. I, I began looking at these. Once you, be, once you see this thing about wellness versus non-wellness, and what happens when you make wellness the first priority and how you can do that it stands out like it's got neon on it. Mm. Now you look, for instance, I just had conversations with several physicians who were doing PTSD research and discovering through their research and through the accounts of the soldiers and airmen and sailors and Marines that they're getting results with marijuana that they could never get with opiates and with um, psychoactive drugs, right. Valium, those sort of antidepressants, you realize we have thousands of deaths from pharmaceutical reactions. There is no example of a person overdosing on marijuana. We have tens of thousands of people who kill themselves with alcohol. Yeah. These are these big lies 
that we tell ourselves. The big lies, these are Orwellian lies. If you, if you look at this marijuana issue, you will see its counterpart in all kinds of areas going on where uh, agriculture, let me take agriculture for a minute. We have known for a number of years, anybody that bothered to really look at the research, that neonicotinoids mm -hmm. are destructive of bees. Whether they're the only thing that's destructive of bees is irrelevant. And that's the red herring that, oh, it's not, it's not that, it's the whatever. The telephone, radio frequency. Well, whatever, yeah. yeah. We have allowed Monsanto to sell this stuff despite the fact that of the 90 major foodstuffs that human beings eat, 70 of them depend on bee pollination. I mean, we're literally putting at risk the world's entire food system, and we sell it anyway. Permitted yeah. to be sold. Why? Yeah. Because profit is the only social priority. If wellness was your priority, that stuff would never have been allowed to go into the market. Yeah. It should have, and, and once it was in, it, like DDT, it should have been taken off years ago. Doesn't this suggest... Monsanto, by the way, yeah. has been sued and is being brought to trial for human rights violations in The Hague. It's going to be very interesting to see how the corporate world reacts to that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you, the example you raise with marijuana is indisputable. Uh, you can look at the same thing with um, sex education. Oh, absolutely. The states that are abstinence only are the states that have the highest STD uh, transmission rates, right. the highest teen pregnancy, the highest, every form of suffering related to sexuality is higher in those states. Right. Sam Brownback's a fucking joke. He's, he's bankrupted his state. Uh, Ronald Reagan's supply-side economics trickle down. David Stockman came out and said, that's all bullshit. I, I invented no. it, but it's all bullshit. We know these things don't work. Yes, but they're incredibly profitable. And incredibly, yes, incredibly they make, profitable. They make a, a, an enormous <laughs> amount of money yeah. for a small group of people. That's what's created wealth inequity. Okay, now let me ask you a, a question. A society which makes profit first right. will inevitably produce massive social inequality. Sure. A society which produces wellness first will People will still make lots of money, but the, uh, the negative, wellness-degrading social effects that we witness under a profit-first system, just, they just disappear. Right. Yes, I mean, to take your point, again, you look at the red states, the blue states, exactly as you say. In those states, red value states, which bloviate endlessly about family values. Everything that you're saying, absolutely correct. There's more teen pregnancy, there's more sexually transmitted diseases, there's more divorce, there's more abortion mm -hmm. in red yeah. value states. The policies which arise from a worldview that says we're each isolated and separate and we have Everybody's out for himself, and devil take the hindmost, and those who are the most sociopathic can rise to the top. 
those states in the long run, when you see them over a period of time, are doing worse and worse and worse. And that's obvious. Anyone who cares to Anybody look, that looks at right data there. will find yeah. that to be true. Yeah. I, I, this is not my political position. This, is, uh, this isn't my polemics about it. Look at the data. That's right. what I tell people. Quit arguing about is it Democratic or Republican. That's another one of these big lie things. The question is, is what's being done productive of wellness or is it degrading of wellness? And you can look at what has gone through. I'll give you an, an example also of when I say we can change this, there are less than 87,000 Quakers in the United States. In the whole of American history, there have been less than half a million. Most people have never met a Quaker, have no idea what they believe, don't know what their services are like, maybe have heard the name. And yet, that tiny little group of people, so small most people have never met one, and so anonymous. If you look at every progressive social transformational change in the United States, from the colonial period, abolition, penal reform, public education, women's suffrage, the environmental movement, the nuclear freeze movement, those movements, when you track them back to their beginnings, begin with a little group of Quakers. Mm. The Quakers have created more social transformation than any other group in the country wellness-oriented social transformation. Right. All of the big major trends that we just take for granted now begin with Quakers. A, an example, everybody knows Greenpeace. How many people know that Greenpeace was funded by a couple of Quaker couples and about six or eight media guys up in Vancouver? I didn't know that. Nobody knows that <coughs> because <coughs> these, these eight laws that, that, that I've been we're talking about. One of them is you have to be willing to do the work even if you don't get credit. <laughs> to, to take this conversation in and I don't know how much time we have here, but as much as you want, till we have to go to the airport. Yeah, we have to go to the airport, and we have to be there at twelve thirty. So we've got half an hour. Okay. Um, I am so concerned about what's happening to this country. I'm a vet. My father was a vet. My mother's brothers were all vets. My aunt, I have an aunt that was a vet. Going all the way back, if you listen to one of my aunts, I have three forebears who signed either the Constitution or the Declaration. So my family's been here, my mother's family, for a long time, 1609 or something like that. I have an existential attachment to the United States. It's true. I think about moving to other countries, but I have an existential attachment to the United States. And as a result of that, I have enormous urgency and alarm mm -hmm. about what's happening. Because when I look at what's going on, what I see is the collapse of American society. Yeah. And when you add climate change to that, you, you have a formula 
for the complete breakdown of culture. Yeah. So I, yeah. I so four times in my life I've been involved in massive social change. Civil rights in the 50s and 60s, uh, the transformation of the military from an elitist conscription organization to an all-volunteer meritocracy in the 70s, citizens' diplomacy in the 80s when we set up back channels between the Soviet Union and mm. the United States keep us from blowing ourselves up. And through all of that, the consciousness movement and its first cousin, the environmental movement. And, and I began about, about 20 years ago, I began to think about these things that I had gone through and what I had learned about them and how social change worked. And, and my, because I'm a data person, I thought, will the data tell us how to do this? How can individuals and in small groups put history on a different course, change the, the arc of the narrative? I became so concerned about what I was seeing in this country that I thought, I, I gotta write a book about this. And so I did, The Eight Laws of Change. And, and it's basically about how individuals and small groups can do that. And it turns out it's really remarkably simple. It, it's, it's not easy, but it's simple. Hmm. That's an important distinction. <laughs> and, and yes, well, yes, but you'll see. From an individual point of view, the key is this. You have to become aware that you're constantly making choices. And that choices are like voting. So when you go into the supermarket or the drugstore mm. to pick up a tube of to toothpaste or a bag of cat food, you have to ask, what is this company like? Do they pay their workers well? Do they pollute? You have to do a little research. It's not hard. You can do it in a few moments. All you have to do is do a Google on it. That's one of the benefits of the internet. There's, it's easy to get information. So first of all, you have to become aware you're making decisions. Strangely enough, most people are not. Secondly, of the options that are available to you at, this, at that moment, you must consistently choose the one that is the most compassionate and life-affirming as you understand it at that moment. Now, none of the options may be great, but inevitably, one option will be more compassionate and life-affirming and productive of wellness than the others. Mm. That's the one you take. Choose the option that is the most compassionate in life of her. Yeah. Know that you are making a decision. Become cognizant of what your decision represents. If you're buying Roundup, you're not getting it. Right. Become cognizant of what the company that you're, whose product you are buying, that's a vote for them. Mm. It's like an election. <clears throat> yeah. And you can see how this works. If you look about 18 months ago, there was a shift in consciousness in this country. Nobody got on television and demanded it. There was no law passed about it. The Supreme Court didn't give a ruling about it. The president didn't go on television about it. 
people just made the decision that instead of saying gay, I'm going to say LGBT. Mm. Now that's not just a change in term, that's a change in concept about what it means to be a human being. Mm. And you can do a Google word search, you can see this happen. There was a change that <clears throat> occurred because there was a change of consciousness mm. that occurred. So this business about making these little choices, it's very powerful. McDonald's is going to close more stores than it opens this year. Why? Because when people said, let's see, where should we go to get something quick to eat? That's not what they chose. Mm. These little votes. The cereal companies, Kellogg's decided that, or Post, which whoever makes um, uh, Cheerios, decided they better get on this anti-GMO thing and put a label on it because people stopped eating cold cereals. You don't think these little choices, I mean you go into the 7-Eleven to pick up some toothpaste and, and you think, you know, I'm just an ordinary guy, I make an ordinary income, I mean what can my choice, what difference does it make? You know, I'm just, I'm a guy there, I'm a girl, a woman that's doing it. Well the truth is, if there was just one of you, that would be true perhaps. But if there's a lot of you, the GMO thing, the marijuana legalization, the marriage equality, if there are a lot of you, it makes a huge difference. And there are a lot of you. That's, that's, that's what people that's don't what, recognize. So the second part of this is you know you're making a change. You know what the, you become cognizant of what the change represents. And you always choose the most compassionate and life-affirming and wellness-productive option. And you go out and tell 10 of your friends that you're doing this and invite them to uh, join you in doing it and invite 10 of their friends. Yeah. Now you think, what difference could that make? Well, let me tell you that within, if, if, if a thousand people hear this show and commit to this, they can change the election outcome in 2016. Why? Because a thousand becomes 10,000, becomes a hundred thousand, becomes a million, becomes 10 million. Right. And we know from research that was done at Van Rensselaer Polytech Institute that whenever 10% of a cohort, any cohort, whatever its size, shifts in its consciousness that there is a tip and the whole thing changes. Mm. More than that, we know that violent change, coercive change, only succeeds 25% of the time, and it doesn't last. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, national socialism, depending on how you calculate that, only lasted between 10 and 20 years. Yeah. Communism, this great monolith that dominated our lives, I mean, you're old enough to remember this. Sure that dominated our thinking in the Soviet Union. It didn't last as long as a single, it's, it lasted less than my age. Right, yeah, less than a lifetime. Less than, uh, 70, I think 73 years, December the 25th, 1991. Right. So about 73 years. From 1917 or something? Yeah, yeah. 18, yeah. I can't, anyway, the but Russian yes. Russian Revolution. So it's about, yeah. right? So these huge monoliths that seem 
unassailable and impregnable yeah. actually can be changed very quickly. In contrast, nonviolent change succeeds 75% of the time and it endures. Why? Because it's inclusive. It brings people in. They recognize the benefit because they have greater wellness. I'd just like to note that today, as we record this, is Martin Luther King Day. Yes, and I was there to hear him give the I Have a Dream speech. Were you? I was, indeed. It oh, was an one of the, perhaps the most extraordinary uh, public spectacles I've ever seen. I listened to a recording of the speech in its entirety yesterday. It was beautiful. I was driving and it came on the radio and they played the whole thing straight through. It was Oh really? Amazing. Oh, it was a wonderful it was a wonderful day. And I had been involved with civil rights since the fifties. And I can remember walking down Constitution Avenue, the crowds of people toward the Lincoln Memorial. The old Navy buildings which are gone now on the left, looking at these crowds of people and I saw, I was walking with a black friend uh, who was a journalist down the, and I looked over and I saw four partners of the largest Republican law firm in Washington, D.C. And I looked at him and said, we've won because those guys would not be here oh, right. if the game hadn't changed. Right. Yes, it was quite extraordinary to see uh, Dr. King, you know, with Abraham Lincoln, this enormous white marble statue behind him, yeah. sort of giving it blessing. That's an, it was an amazing experience. The, the only thing comparable to it that I experienced was uh, Kennedy's funeral. Mm. But there, one was an ending and the other was a beginning. And it's within a year of each other, right? No, no, no. No, it's a little more than that. Kennedy died 62, 61, I think 62, and I think the speech was 63. Was Martin King, I think so. I may be getting, I was born in 62, and I think Kennedy was alive when I was born. But we, we, can, we can work it out. But it was very close in time. Yes. And certainly in space. Yes. You happened to be in Washington for both of them. Well, it was close in terms of the narrative. Was, was there a sense of despair at Kennedy's funeral that, that we'd lost? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the horse with the boots stuck oh, in. Oh, my God, and the children. And the riderless. Yeah, it was very dramatic. But it was an ending. Do you have a sense? What's your opinion on who was behind that? Oh, I don't know enough to know about that. I mean, you know, who was Lyndon Johnson, the CIA? I don't know. Yeah, I find it hard to believe Lyndon Johnson was behind it. I, I don't know. He, I know he was a bastard, but he seemed like a decent enough guy. He was also a guy who tried to do a lot of good. That's what he I mean, yeah. He some of it very well, but he tried, and we would not have had the Voting Rights Act yeah. of 64. He, he seemed well-intentioned, not Absolutely. the kind of guy who's going to assassinate his president. No, I, I, don't, I, I don't spend a lot of time on conspiracies like that because I don't think any of them are really particularly relevant. There are conspiracies. Sure. There are collusion amongst ultra wealthy people. I mean, you know, we've become a country, nobody seems to find this bizarre, but you know, we, you, we got 
recently, in this election cycle, we got nine billionaires that audition candidates. Yeah. They yeah. come and kiss their ring and perform their little magic show, and these guys decide whether they're going to back them. It's, yeah. it's astonishing. The interesting thing is that it's not proving to be very effective yet. Yeah, Jeb is going nowhere. He's got the most no. money. No, I, I'm, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, I think um, Bernie Sanders gets it. He, he understands does. that wellness is the choice you've got to make. It, I mean, I, I would certainly vote for Hillary Clinton over any... The, the thing about the Republican candidates is what cretins they are. Yeah. I, I mean, if you look at the Democratic debates and the Republican debates, it's really, it's, it's really kind of scary. I, I, you know, I think we all have this sense that things can only get so ridiculous before people just shake their heads and say, come on, no, no. That's what I thought. But, but we keep passing it. Yes, we keep going. And nothing happens. Yes, exactly. We keep going past that, that <clears throat> off ramp. It's, yeah. it's astonishing. I, I mean, you just listen to the stuff that get the fear. The, take anyway, I just I want to finish this one point. So I felt compelled to write this book right? because I thought, I've done all this research and the patterns were so clear. Is this your first book? No, no, no. Uh, my fifth book and, I don't know, hundreds of papers yeah. um, and articles. and I wanted to get it out because I wanted these principles are so straightforward. And they seem so simple because people keep telling you, you have no power, you don't mean anything, mm. you're just an ordinary person and, you know, what do you have? But the truth is there is no, there is no force on earth as powerful as the collective intention of a multitude. It'll change anything. It has changed anything. And what I'm concerned with is that we are experiencing a kind of great schism now, where we're really splitting into two countries. And dialogue across those two countries is getting increasingly difficult, and will get increasingly difficult, because the major trends that are going on are freaking people out for the first time in 500 years, being born white is not going to confer privilege. We started to talk earlier about opiates. What's interesting <coughs> is opiate use amongst Hispanics and blacks is going down. Yeah. Opiate use amongst whites is going up. Why is that? And the reason, I think, is that black and Hispanic kids never expected to get the benefit. They never expected to get privilege. So anything they get, they, they earn because there's nothing awarded just because you're around. <laughs> yeah. White kids are now also experiencing that for the first time and it's making them crazy. Yeah. And by the same token, their elders, a certain segment of their elders, are, have become so fearful that they are willing to tolerate 
just let's take guns. They're willing to tolerate 92 people a day dying by gunfire. 33,000 people a year dying by gunfire. Dying by gunfire is now a significant cause of death in the United States. Incomprehensible. You live in Europe, so I know that you know that it's incomprehensible. Yeah. And of course, this, is, this isn't at all what the founders had in mind. This is not what the Second Amendment is about. That is not what they were trying to do. But we are willing to tolerate it because our fear is so great that we feel, oh my God, I've got to go out and get a gun and protect myself. Now, the reality is that the person most likely to be injured by your gun is a friend or a family member. Yeah. But we tolerate it because of this fear issue. You look at the climate change trend. We have, we are the only country in the developed world that has a major party that thinks the whole thing is a hoax and won't do anything about it. I mean, that, you, you go, again, you talk to Europeans. I've made, I've made three trips to Europe so far this, this year. And I, they come up to me, at, at, you know, at dinners or talking, or if I give a paper or a talk at a conference, you know, why are you so violent? Yeah. It's, if you're looking outside, it's incomprehensible. Yeah. I've had people say to me, you know, I've always wanted to come to the United States, but my wife just thinks it's too dangerous. It's a tragedy because, like, my wife was raised in Africa, and she, we've been here in the States for a few months, and she, it breaks her heart because yeah. she said, man, I, when I was a little girl, America was the place where you knew how to do everything right. All the best music, all right. the, the moon shots, all the, everything beautiful and wonderful and hopeful was happening in America. And now I come here and everybody is overweight and sick yes. and the food is horrible and the, the bridges are falling down. What happened? To yes. the what happened, America? You know it. Ronald Reagan. That's what happened. That is exactly Richard, what. Richard Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Well, Richard Nixon you fucked a lot of stuff up, but then you know he was out. He was out, and then you had Ford, who seemed like a decent enough guy, and then the country wanted a change, and Jimmy Carter came in, and he said, we're going to wear sweaters, and we're going to put solar panels on the White House, and we're going to go metric, and we're going to be reasonable, intelligent people, and the country said, no, fuck that. We like the fantasy. We prefer the actor, the divorced actor telling us about family values with the gay kid that he won't ever mention and the AIDS crisis that he won't name. We prefer the fucking fantasy. That, to me, was the fundamental turn from truth and reality to self-destructive fantasy. At the end of World War II, having seen all the death, we oriented ourselves toward wellness. Yeah. And we created the most successful middle class in history. With Ronald Reagan, we committed ourselves, we sold our soul to profit. Exactly. And as a result of that, we are unhappy, we are miserable, we are unhealthy. We are, our children are amongst the least healthy, least advanced, least educated in the world. We have 17 million children that have hunger issues in the United States. I mean, your wife is absolutely correct. The first time I went to 
uh, I worked for National Geographic when I came out of university. And I was sent uh, to Jordan in the, this is the very early 60s. And it was the first time I'd ever traveled for business. And I, you know, I was unbelievably naive. <laughs> and I went up to this restaurant on the Corniche. It was on the second floor. Had these big French windows that opened out in the balustrades. And um, I ate this really wonderful meal by myself. And I reached in and I realized I had changed pants and I had left my wallet and my other pants. Uh -huh. And all I had with me was my press card, my geographic press card. And I asked the waiter um, if uh, he, his friend could, if the manager, he could bring the manager over and he did. You know, here I am, I'm 20 years old, uh, 21 years old, and I've said to this guy, you know, I'm, I've really, I've made a terrible mistake, I'm so sorry, I don't have any money. I changed pants, I left my wallet, the other thing, but I have my press card for National Geographic in here, and I'll leave it with you and I will come back and pay you. I'll just walk around the corner and to the hotel and I'll get my wallet and I'll come right back, is that okay? There were, this was before credit cards. And, um, and he said to me, don't worry, it's my pleasure to give you this meal. During the last war, during the Second World War, your family, your, your country saved my family from being killed. It's my honor to give an American a free meal. My most recent trip uh, to Sweden, I'm sitting at the table with a Swedish engineer, a Norwegian engineer, I was spoke at a conference, and this guy's sophomore daughter who was at university, and we're having lunch. And she said to me, how many people get killed in your country every day by guns? I said, 92. She said, how many did the police kill? I said, so far this year, 958. How many get killed in a year? 33,000. She said to me, why are you so violent? We have guns. There's lots of guns in Norway. Why are you so violent? How can you live in a society where 92 people a day are cut down by gunfire? What happened to America? And I didn't have an answer for that. Hmm. And it embarrassed me and made me very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I understand what your wife is saying because you hear it all over the world. When you go, I've been, to, I've been three times to Europe this year, France, Norway, Sweden, Mexico. Oh yeah, Mexico, I forgot. Um, inevitably, I talk about the eight laws. People come up to me and say, what happened to America?
you were the most admired country in the world, blah, blah, just like your wife. All the good music, all the hip stuff, all the breakthroughs, all the things that we all wanted, you could get them in America. What happened? And the answer is, we made profit the first priority. Yeah. And the problem is, profit is liquid. It leaves the country. It well, it's not only, not only <clears throat> liquid, that is true, but it is also, it's morally neutral. Yeah. I would say morally corrosive. Oh, it is absolutely morally corrosive because it is emotionally corrosive. Oh, yes, absolutely, I would agree with you about that. You, you have been in the upper echelons of uh, government. I get the sense that you have, uh, in your social life, have spent a lot of time with millionaires and you've probably been on your share of yachts and <laughs> in castles and so on. Um, I know people of all social groups. Yeah. And, and I don't make distinctions based on money. No, okay, but my point is I, I've been fortunate in my life, or <laughs> I don't even know if I want to call it fortunate, but I, I've, uh, I don't come from a particularly wealthy family, whatever, but for some reason, very wealthy people have befriended me and sort of brought me along as the token normal guy. I, I don't really know why that is. I, I suspect it's because they can sense that I don't really care about money, so there's a trust that happens there. Um, but in any case, my experience, I'd be interested to know if your experience confirms this, my experience is that there really is no correlation between um, wealth and happiness above no. the well, well, not only it's, it's, it has nothing to do with opinion, Chris. There's research on this. Sure. Uh, and the research economy, shows that yeah. when you get o over about $75,000, yeah. your happiness doesn't, doesn't alter. Right. And yes, I've known a number of, of extremely wealthy people who were miserable. Right. Really. Right. So this leads to a, a, a more fundamental question, which is that, you know, we, the way we frame these conversations, we talk about very wealthy, the elite that's controlling, you know, a sort of a Marxist analysis of yeah. the means of production and yada, 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 and they get the yachts and they buy their islands. And, but if they are miserable, or, or at least we can say not um, significantly happier than someone making 80 grand a year, doesn't have to worry about retirement and so on, then what the hell is going on? Because the winners of the game aren't winning. The losers are losing, but the winners aren't winning. So yes. my, I mean, I've just finished writing a book, sent it to the editor two weeks ago, and the argument in that book is that, is that it's not, it's not the rich against the poor, it's humans against institutions. That institutions are an emergent life form, just like a swarm of locusts or a hive of bees or an anthill. And that has become the organism, and the agenda of that organism is overriding the agendas of the human beings within it. Well, I, I would, I would, Okay, uh, but I would make a more nuanced, I, I, I don't disagree with it, but I would make it more nuanced. Because I do consciousness research, and so there is another dimension to this issue, and that is the non-local aspect of consciousness. That once 
to, to, well, a little background. Once you get that we don't live on the earth, we don't have dominion over the earth, Iron Age stories to the contrary, we live in the earth. There's life several miles below our feet. Little worms have been found seven miles down. And there's life miles above us. We live in the Goldilocks zone on the surface. And we are not isolated. We are not just animated meat. Consciousness is not just a physiological peculiarity of certain chemical reactions. That in fact we live in a matrix of life that extends from the simplest single cell organism all the way up to high order mammals like us. We're in a matrix that's all and, the, and, and everything is in this matrix in the biosphere. And it is all interconnected and interdependent. And there's a great deal of research about this. It's another one of the big lies. Once you understand that you're in a matrix and that the choices that you're making make a, make a difference and you see organizations as kind of, they're not organisms, they're, let me reframe it, you see that collective intention has a multiplier effect. You know, Roger Nelson, who's up at, was the lab manager at the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Group for about 20 years. Roger was doing studies, they were doing studies at the lab and he was part of the team that, where they were asking people to see if they could make random number generators go non-random. Mm. And, um, Random number generators, by definition, are things that are random. <laughs> they're made that way. That's what they're supposed to be. Could you make them go non-random? Well, you could. You can. And they published lots of papers about this. Roger asked the question, well, if that's true of an individual trying to affect a mm. random number generator, what happens if there is a collective, a, a, a Tension, uh, focused intention. What happens when collective focused intention, in an particularly in an emotional state, coalesces? So he put random number generators all over the planet. And he's got a whole network of these things, and they run all the time, 24-7. And what he's discovered is that when there is a coalescing event that that creates collective intentioned awareness, these random number generators go non-random. Yeah. There's a perturbation in the force, right. as it were. So examples of such events are? Uh, Nelson Mandela's funeral, uh, the tsunami in Japan in 2011, right. Princess Diana's death. So something pulls the world's attention. Something that captures the world's attention focuses. and coalesces it in an intention-focused awareness. Now we know, we know in remote viewing, I'm one of the people who created remote viewing, 
And we know in remote viewing that, uh, which is the ability to describe persons, places, or events using this non-local aspect of consciousness, we discovered in the research that it's easier to see Chartres Cathedral, to remote view Chartres Cathedral, than it is a warehouse of the same size. Why is that? Well, because Chartres Cathedral has been the focus of thousands and thousands of individual acts of intentioned awareness in a highly emotional state. People have been going there for centuries. Mm. Whereas people walk by a warehouse and they don't even give it a thought. So that gives us two data points. One is that where there is a coalesced intentioned awareness, particularly if it's highly emotional, there is a perturbation. Literally, in a sense, it's a perturbation in reality. And second, that individual acts of intentioned awareness have some kind of enriching, informationally enriching property. It's like they leave tracks or something. Yes, it's not in space-time. You know, I'm a Planckian. Planck said in 1931, they asked him, well, what have you learned? I mean, he's the father of quantum mechanics. And he said, what have I learned? I've learned that consciousness is fundamental and that space-time and materiality are its manifestations. That wow. it begins with consciousness. And he was agreed with by Heisenberg, Schrodinger, Pauli, Einstein. Einstein calls it the optical delusion. I particularly like that one. And it's fundamental to Buddhism. Oh, yes, of course. That consciousness you know, creates everything else. Well, you know, there's only one mountain in town and it's an illusion, so how you get up it <laughs> is purely a matter of personal taste and style. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. we gotta go. This has been fascinating, and I, I, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. There's so much more I wanted to, to talk with you about, but we have to get you to the airport. Yeah, I, got, I gotta go, yeah. I'm sorry. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, you don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osment, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And, of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at ShoreDesignT-Shirts.com. And, of course, all the shirts that are at ChrisRyanPhD.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. 
And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. to the ground.